Musical Man, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I hope that wherever you are, that you are comfortable and safe and feeling good about the day. And if you aren't, that's perfectly fine as well. Uh, Not every day is meant to be a good one, (laughs) as I remind myself uh, fairly often. Uh, so <laughs> what, a, what a bittersweet opening, right, Patty? Uh, yeah, you got to get a little bit of, of medicine with your molasses in this little opening of mine this week. I, I don't apologize for it. It's life, baby. It's life. That's what life is all about. Taking the bitter with the sweet. Uh, Patty, I would like to dedicate this opening segment to the world of film. That's right. We're going to be stepping away just for a moment from the world of musical theater. I want to talk about the film industry. We got a lot of news this week regarding the film industry. Chris Rock is developing a new entry in the Saw franchise of horror films. Robert Pattinson has been cast as the latest iteration of Batman. But, uh, you know, I, I understand a lot of people were talking about those news items from this past week, but I don't think we've been talking nearly enough about this story. Apparently, Disney is developing a movie called Shrunk. It is to star Josh Gad, and they are referring to Shrunk as a legacy-sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's their term. They're using coining. They're trying to make this the fetch of 2019. They are trying to push the idea that Shrunk, in which Josh Gad plays the grown son of Rick Moranis' character from the original Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, is a legacy-sequel. Legacy plus sequel. You know what? I'm just going to have to pull back on the reins and say that we are no longer allowed to spin out of whole cloth new variations on the word sequel. Here's what we're not allowed to say anymore. We're certainly not allowed to say legacy sequel. Okay, that's not going to happen. Stop trying to make legacy sequel happen. It ain't going to happen. Not on my watch. You also cannot say rebootquel which I honestly think is a term that gets thrown around in regards to films like Terminator Dark Fate, which is a sequel to the first two Terminator films and ignores everything that came after those first two films. I, I, no, no, no. You, you don't get to use Rebootquel. You don't get to use Sidequel. Anything that ends with Quel that isn't Sequel, you don't get to say it. Okay, you can do a reboot, a sequel, or a prequel. That's it. Those are our standard storytelling terms from now on. Stop doing cocaine. Stop spending 14 hours (laughs) in your convertible (laughs) leading up to the pitch meeting trying to come up with the term that's going to seal the deal. Also, this is a terrible idea for a film. (laughs) Shrunk starring Josh Gad as the son of Rick Moranis' character from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. No thanks. This is supposed to premiere on Disney+. Plus. It sounds like a Disney Channel original movie. Honestly, a lot of the projects that are being developed for Disney+, Plus, which is a service I am interested in subscribing to, I should say. I'm a slave to the system. But Shrunk and a lot of these other... The Lady and the Tramp remake... I, I was reading about a Rescue Rangers project that's apparently metatextual and cool. The term that was being thrown around in the official <laughs> news item I read was that the pitch involved it being cool. Okay, fine. It's cool. And <laughs> I assume that all movies are striving for the term cool. You know what I'd really like? If people thought the movie was cool. <laughs> that's like saying, I really hope people think the movie's good. You know what we're aiming for? Good. <laughs> Oh, no, you're going to love this. You're going to love this pitch. I'm thinking good. (laughs) That's my opening segment. That's my opening. (laughs) 
Bill Maher-esque new rules segment. Oh God, that's the last time I compare myself to that horrible praying mantis of a man. Uh, Let's move on to this week's subject. Uh, This was offered to us as, this was not offered to us, this was dictated as was her right. I believe uh, Jenna, yes, Jenna, thank you very much for uh, demanding, dictating that we discuss Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Let's waste no more time and dive right into the show facts, shall we? Yes. Sweeney Todd is based on a 1973 play written by Christopher Bond. Bond's play is an adaptation of The String of Pearls, A Romance, an 18-part Penny Dreadful serial that was published weekly throughout 1846 and 1847 as part of Edward Lloyd's The People's Periodical and Family Library. Penny Dreadfuls, otherwise known as Penny Horribles, Penny Awfuls, and Penny Bloods, were basically schlock literature written in haste and focusing on such subjects as highwaymen, vampires, and blokes like Sweeney Todd. The official author of The String of Pearls is unknown, although many credit James Malcolm Reimer or Thomas Peckett Prest. The serial was later expanded into a 732-page novel known as The String of Pearls, The Barber of Fleet Street, A Domestic Romance. That's a colon and then a dash for the record. I know, catchy, right? Slips right off the tongue like it's made out of molten fucking velvet. The String of Pearls, The Barber of Fleet Street, A Domestic Romance. Do you have that shopkeep? (laughs) If you like it all that much, it's yours. Oh, really? The String of Pearls, The Barber of Fleet Street, A Domestic Romance? All for my very own? Slips right off the tongue. Though the story's historical origins are questionable, a Parisian minister of police named Joseph Fouché was said to have held records of a murderous barber from the early 1800s who partnered with a local pastry cook to make pies out of his victims. I realize we haven't gotten into the nitty-gritty of Sweeney Todd's plot, so that may be confounding for those who aren't familiar with the show yet, but I assure you it will all make sense in hindsight. The series and the novel were adapted several times before Christopher Bond came along in the 1970s, though his play is credited with lending Sweeney Todd a level of psychological depth previous adaptations never bothered to explore, whereas the Penny Dreadful was fine with making Sweeney a broad villain. Bond gave him a background that made him somewhat sympathetic to audiences. You didn't necessarily agree with his actions, but you understood how he could be driven to such madness. Stephen Sondheim saw Bond's play and, inspired by its themes of revenge and obsession, endeavored to adapt it into a musical. Sondheim viewed the character of Sweeney as a man driven by compulsions that exist within us all. But the director of the Broadway production, Harold Prince, determined Sweeney was the product of a brutal industrial age. In keeping with this theory, Prince decided to set the musical within a literal 19th century iron foundry he had initially scouted while visiting Rhode Island. The foundry was torn apart and reassembled on stage, lending the production a deeply menacing apocalyptic air. For her part, Harold's wife, Judy Prince, believed the show to be about Sondheim himself, his obsessions, his compulsions as an artist, which would basically fall in line with the composer's theory. One last bit of trivia for you before we sort through the names and dates of the show. Apparently, West End audiences weren't nearly as shocked by Sweeney Todd the musical when it premiered on their side of the pond, as the original story had been a very dominant part of their culture since the 1800s. I like to think they put Sweeney on the same shelf as Father Christmas. Who? Sweeney? Oh, yes, everyone knows about him, dear boy. A bit of a dodgy fellow, isn't he? Oh, yes, boring! Yawn! Right, I suppose everyone in New York City on Broadway was all, all a flutter. Oh, this Sweeney Todd! 
He's come out of the ether, I do say. What a sudden surprise for us. Sweeney Todd would go on to become the 1979 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It originally opened on Broadway on March 1st, 1979 at the Urus Theater and ran for 557 performances. The book was written by Hugh Wheeler, again based on Christopher Bond's 1973 play. Music and lyrics by none other than Stephen Sondheim. The director, again, was Harold Prince. The musical director was Paul Gemignani. Uh, that's, uh, aha, I recognize you again, Paul. Yes, I, yes, yes, yes. There you are, Paul. I see you. I see you, Jake Sully. I see you. Avatar 2 through 5 coming over the course of the next two decades, right? No more movie news. <laughs> the choreographer. Uh, so the actual credit here was not choreographer, but dance and movement by Larry Fulton. We have to make that distinction. Set design, Eugene Lee. Lighting design, Ken Bellington. Costume design, Fran Lee. And the original Broadway cast included Len Carew, Angela Lansbury, Victor Garber as Anthony. He plays the character of Anthony, which we'll get into that character in a moment. I had no idea that Victor Garber was on the original Broadway cast album. I've listened to it several times, but I just put that together this week. So sometimes you learn things uh, long after you've <laughs> begun engaging with a bit of material. The cast also included Ken Jennings, Merle Louise, Edmund Lindeck, Sarah Rice, Joaquin Romaguera, Jack Eric Williams. The original Broadway cast included 27 people in total compared to the 2006 revival's 10-member cast. Uh, I just want to point that out. I will have a little bit to say in regards to the 2006 revival in a moment. I keep putting things off. I do apologize. Again, I really don't like it when people do that on podcasts, but I just wanted to point that out. So 27 people in the original Broadway cast versus the revival's 10. Just a distinction that I want to make for later. Fun trivia about the casting of Angela Lansbury, if we can hop back to her for a second. Sondheim offered to audition for Angela Lansbury when she was initially skeptical of becoming involved with the show. She was specifically concerned she would have to play second banana to Sweeney Todd, which seems reasonable considering the show is named after him. Uh, When Sondheim compared the role of Mrs. Lovett, the character that she would come to play, to a performer in a British music hall, Angela Lansbury lit up and she was suddenly quite interested in pursuing this part. She had grown up in British music halls and loved uh, Sondheim's concept for the character. P.S. We all know about Angela's insane comments relating to the Me Too movement, right? Her comments that sort of legitimize rape culture. She's a million years old. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily mean to throw out that card every now and then. It's a it's a crummy card to use. Yeah, she's from a different time. She's from a different generation. But uh, it's something to keep in mind. That's where she's coming from. Look up those quotes if you're not familiar. They're not, not great. So Tony Nods. The show was nominated for Best Lighting Design. Ken Billington uh, was nominated for that award. This is the only category in which it was nominated but did not win. So all of these other categories, they won. Just wanted to let you know right off the bat. So they won Best Musical, of course. They won Best Book of a Musical, Hugh Wheeler. Uh, Best Original Score, Stephen Sondheim. Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical, Lynn Carew. Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Angela Lansbury. Best Direction of a Musical, Harold Prince. Best Scenic Design, Eugene Lee. And Best Costume Design, Fran Lee. So nine nominations in total and eight wins. That is a healthy ratio, I do say. And now for a bit of plot. Hmm, yes, let's get into the sticky, penny, dreadful, bloody, awful mess that is the Sweeney Todd plot. <laughs> the year is 1846. Sweeney Todd arrives in London with Anthony Hope, a wide-eyed sailor who rescued Sweeney while at sea. As the men exchange words on the docks, a homeless and disturbed woman appears to ask for money and offers sexual favors. She peers at Sweeney for a moment, seemingly in recognition, before being brusquely shooed away. Sweeney divulges to Anthony how he once worked as a barber in London and was happily married married to a woman named Lucy, only to then be banished to a prison colony by the lecherous Judge Turpin. The haunted barber and the wide-eyed sailor say their goodbyes and part ways. Sweeney soon arrives at the shop of Mrs. Lovett, a widow who makes disgusting meat pies and can barely earn a living. When Sweeney suggests she rent the room above her shop, Mrs. Lovett expands on a story we've already begun to hear. The barber who was dragged out of London was named Benjamin Barker, and his wife, Lucy, was tricked into thinking Judge Turpin would help her. Instead, she was lured into his masquerade ball where she was raped. 
Sweeney breaks down upon hearing this news, which confirms Mrs. Lovett's initial suspicions. Sweeney is, of course, the alias by which Benjamin Barker now operates. They are one in the same. She relays how Lucy ingested poison and died soon after her attack, and how Sweeney's daughter Joanna is now Judge Turpin's ward. When Mrs. Lovett hands Sweeney the sterling silver straight razors she has kept for him after all of these years, he is inspired to exact bloody revenge on Judge Turpin. Meanwhile, while walking the streets of London, Anthony spies a young woman singing in her window and is instantly smitten by her appearance. The homeless woman reappears to confirm this young woman is Joanna, though Anthony has no way of knowing she is Sweeney's daughter. He vows to return and woo Joanna, though he is chased away by Judge Turpin and the Beadle Bamford, who acts as the judge's assistant. For the record, Beadle, B-E-A-D-L-E, is a title denoting an official of the church or the general community. The Beadle is just as abhorrent as Judge Turpin, it should be said, having helped the old man in his crusade to rape Lucy and raise Joanna. The judge, who routinely flagellates himself with a whip to subdue sexual fantasies that involve Joanna, vows to make her his wife. So a real nice pair of guys is is a really obvious statement I can make at this point. (laughs) Really nice pair of guys. Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett work together to ensnare Judge Turpin by developing a complex scheme. It begins with Sweeney confronting a local barber, tooth puller, and snake oil salesman named Adolfo Pirelli. The two men enter into a contest of skill, which is overseen by the Beadle. When Sweeney proves himself to be the better barber and tooth puller, the Beadle compliments his work. Sweeney offers the Beadle a free shave, knowing that if he can win the man's favor, it could mean the eventual appearance of Judge Turpin. Days pass, and Sweeney quickly grows impatient, wondering when the Beadle will arrive. Mrs. Lovett assures him everything will work out if he is patient. Anthony appears to declare his love and intentions for Joanna. Sweeney, astonished by this stroke of luck, offers his room as a hideout for Anthony when he does manage to abduct Joanna. Moments after Anthony's visit, Pirelli shows up with his assistant, a boy named Tobias Toby Rag. Mrs. Lovett takes the child into her shop for a pie, while Pirelli explains the nature of his visit. Like Sweeney, Pirelli is operating under an alias. His real name is Daniel O'Higgins, and he used to be Sweeney's assistant. When Daniel threatens blackmail, Sweeney slits his throat and hides the body. Mrs. Lovett steals Daniel's coin purse and begins to panic over what they'll do with the corpse when Judge Turpin suddenly appears at their door. Sweeney guides the old man into his barber's chair and is moments away from exacting his revenge when Anthony reappears, crowing about the engagement plans he's made with Joanna. Judge Turpin descends into a fury vowing to send Joanna away and cursing Sweeney before storming into the street. It is at this point, one could argue, Sweeney officially cracks. With the judge having escaped his blade, he vows to instead kill everyone in London, the rich for wielding their powers so callously, as well as the poor who need to be relieved of their misery. The first act ends with Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett triumphantly declaring their intention to bake Sweeney's victims into meat pies. Act 2 opens with business booming at Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. Everyone loves her scrumptious pies. They do, they do. Sweeney kills his customers with abandon, using a newly installed barber's chair to send them through a trap door and down a chute that leads directly into Mrs. Lovett's bakehouse. Mrs. Lovett is overjoyed and dreams of retiring with her partner in crime to the seaside, but Sweeney's thoughts are taken up by Joanna. When Anthony delivers news that Joanna has been locked away in an insane asylum, Sweeney devises another scheme. Anthony will pose as a wig maker, go to the asylum seeking hair the exact color of Joanna's, then spirit her away to Sweeney's room for safekeeping. Anthony sets out and Sweeney sends a letter to the judge compelling the aging pervert to visit him so that Anthony and Joanna can presumably be prevented from eloping. Toby, having become an assistant to Mrs. Lovett, expresses his undying devotion 
devotion to her, as well as a suspicion that Sweeney may be up to no good. Mrs. Lovett assures the boy nothing is wrong, but when she takes out Pirelli's old coin purse, Toby instantly recognizes it and begins to ask one too many questions. As a result, Mrs. Lovett locks him in the bakehouse until she can figure out what to do with him. Seconds later, the beetle shows up, having been asked by Mrs. Lovett's neighbors to investigate the disgusting stench emanating from her chimney. Sweeney makes a swift kill of the beetle and sends his corpse into the bakehouse, where it lands squarely at poor Toby's feet. The child is driven mad, and he escapes into the sewers of London. Anthony is successful in locating Joanna at the asylum, but the caretaker, Jonas Fogg, attempts to prevent their departure. When Anthony draws a gun on Jonas and is unable to pull the trigger, Joanna swipes the gun and kills him herself. As they make their escape, the inmates run free, while Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney search desperately for Toby. Anthony takes Joanna, who at this point is in disguise as a sailor, to Sweeney's room and leaves her there, insisting she'll be fine while he fetches a carriage. While waiting, Joanna is forced to hide when the homeless woman appears and begins to roam about the room, singing a lullaby. Sweeney confronts the homeless woman and kills her upon hearing Judge Turpin coming up the steps. Having disposed of her via the trapdoor and chute, Sweeney is able to calm the frantic judge, who is all too eager to be reunited with his Joanna. The judge is lured back into the barber's chair, and Sweeney is finally able to slit the monster's throat, but only after gleefully revealing his true identity. Joanna comes out of hiding and is nearly killed by Sweeney, only to narrowly escape when the barber is distracted by Mrs. Lovett's screams. He runs down to the bakehouse to find her beating the judge, who had begun to claw at her during his final moments of life. Mrs. Lovett tries to keep Sweeney away from the homeless woman's corpse, but her efforts are in vain. Sweeney spies the woman's face and realizes it is Lucy, his wife. Mrs. Lovett knew the poison Lucy ingested didn't actually kill her, but left her crazed, a truth she chose to keep from Sweeney this entire time. Initially, Sweeney seems nonplussed and pulls Mrs. Lovett into a wild dance, but shortly thereafter, he throws her into the oven. Toby appears from the depths of London's sewers, his hair now white from shock, as he nervously mutters nursery rhymes to himself. He picks up Sweeney's razor and kills the barber. When Joanna and Anthony break into the bakehouse alongside a few local constables, they are horrified by the scene that greets them. The end! For the record, the plot of the original Penny Dreadful from the 1800s hews fairly closely to what we get here in the musical, Though there are some fun differences, uh, these include a wildly helpful lassie-like dog who points people in the right direction, a finale for Sweeney that sees him arrested and hung for his crimes, and a dramatic public declaration that serves as a sort of predecessor to the line, Soylent Green is People. I like to think this declaration is followed by several pie-soaked spit takes. For the purposes of researching Sweeney Todd, I listened to the 1979 original broadcast cast album. This is a rare instance in which the album provides a great deal of material that was initially cut from the Broadway production. It is a treasure we must preserve and no other recordings of the show can really compare. I also watched the 1979 Tony Awards performance in which Angela Lansbury performs her big number from the show, The Worst Pies in London. A wise selection to be sure, but what makes this performance so odd is the conspicuous absence, the lack of Sweeney Todd himself. Uh, he is supposed to be Mrs. Lovett's scene partner during this song. Instead, Lansbury's scene partner is presumably a random citizen of London who just happens to walk into her shop. He's this shaggy guy wearing a top hat. It's impossible to truly draw focus from Lansbury when she's performing the role of Mrs. Lovett. But this random actor gets fairly close with his silent film mugging. Stop mugging random dude. Where is Sweeney? That's my big question. Was Lynn Carew not available? What what happened here? I, I'm fascinated by the backstory behind this performance. And I also watched the 1982 Entertainment Channel TV special. Now, this was recorded in Los Angeles at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in 1981 during the show's first national tour. The TV special features George Hearn in the role of Sweeney, and he is terrific. A ghostly 
Menace, who oozes pain and sorrow. He's a great partner to Angela Lansbury, who reprises her role as Mrs. Lovett here. Hearn would go on to perform alongside Patti Lapone for a concert version of the show, which was also recorded and is available to rent and purchase, but I have not seen this version. It should be noted that I have the other Sweeney Todd recordings, the 2000 New York concert cast. Oh, I believe that's the exact concert that I just referenced between George Hearn and Patti Lapone. I believe that's right. I also have the 2005 Broadway revival cast and the 2007 film soundtrack, and I am interested in getting my hands on the 2012 London revival cast album, which features Imelda Stanton as Mrs. Lovett. Imelda Stanton, as you'll recall, played the baker's wife in the London cast of Into the Woods. She was credited during that episode of the podcast. You can't stream that album or purchase it through iTunes. You have to buy a physical copy through Amazon. That's annoying, right? So eventually I I likely will get my hands on that, uh, but I did not have the time to do so this week, unfortunately. Regarding the 2005 Broadway revival, I realized during this recording session that earlier I referenced it as a 2006 revival. It is in fact 2005. I have confirmed that since. So regarding that revival, I'll say this much. It doesn't really interest me. Uh, I don't find it to be particularly engaging. John Doyle directed the production, much like he directed Stephen Sondheim's Company, in that he nixed the orchestra. He did away with the orchestra and placed the instruments in the hands of the actors instead. This is meant to promote intimacy and bring out qualities in the piece you may have otherwise never noticed. It works quite well for a company, but I don't want a black box Sweeney Todd, if I'm going to be brutally honest. This week's subject works best for me when a large cast, you know, 20 plus, is paired with a thundering, enormous orchestra. Not shrunken down to a pale, tinny imitation of itself. I want to get lost. I want to be subsumed by the nightmarish lunacy of Sweeney's world, not be distracted by the thought of how much work went into teaching someone how to play the bassoon. Don't get me wrong, I do admire the dedication it takes to learning how to play the bassoon, or any instrument for that matter, but I am supposed to view you as a character first and foremost, not as one of ten moving pawns in a softly Brechtian chamber piece. No offense, Patti Lapone, who appeared in this revival as well. I, of course, find you to be fabulous, though I do prefer Angela Lansbury's Mrs. Lovett to your own. If we're just being honest, I might as well throw that into the mix. Please don't rip off my hair. Mrs. Lovett, please, I beg of you. I haven't seen the 2007 Tim Burton film since its initial theatrical run, and I do not plan on revisiting it anytime soon, not only because of Johnny Depp's involvement, but because it is a thoroughly flat adaptation that cuts the thrilling heart out of the original piece. Choosing to remove the show's signature theme, that being the ballad of Sweeney Todd, proves Tim Burton had no business tackling Sondheim's show in the first place. I realize I'm jumping around a bit in this section of the podcast, uh, but my reason for doing so is this. I could have easily done a much deeper dive on Sweeney Todd this week. I could have gone back and listened to all of the recordings I have just described. I could have rewatched the Tim Burton film a second time, but I A, am already quite familiar with these sources, and B, needed to make room in my brain for this month's entry in the Snug Club series, which is dedicated to another homicidal maniac entirely, that being the American Psycho, ding ding, be on the lookout, ten dollars a month, Patreon donors. There's only so much time in the week, you know, and I want to ensure every show that we cover is given its proper due. How can I focus on fairly evaluating American Psycho if I'm spending all of my time in Sweeney Todd Town, I ask you? So with those two points in mind, let it be known, I'll be sticking to the original Broadway cast album and the TV special for the purposes of this week's analysis. To begin our song deconstruction, let's get a little bit more of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd, which again is just fabulous. Let's do that now, Patty. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. He served a dark and eventual God. What happened then? Well, that's the play, and he wouldn't want us to give it away. Not Sweeney. Not Sweeney Todd But in the bottom of his street 
are several reprises throughout the show of The Ballad of Sweeney Todd, but it's the first and final variations that affect me the most. During the show's finale, Sondheim punctuates his philosophy on the character of Sweeney by implying anyone around us could become him at a moment's notice. It's the most chilling and startling declaration the show has to offer, especially when you consider how now, more than ever, we find ourselves afraid of what people can do. Well, men specifically. We should be afraid of men when left to their own devices. One of the best moments from the show's opening is actually metatextual. Sweeney says with a smile, what happens then? Well, that's the play, and he wouldn't want us to give it away. Not Sweeney. The ensemble constantly talks about Sweeney and his motivations, but this is the only instance in which Sweeney himself is able to have a sort of out-of-body reflection. You could underline the idea that the show is being presented to us by a troupe of actors. You could go that Brechtian, that metatextual with it. But again, I'm not interested in having a great deal of distance put between myself and the horrors of Sweeney Todd's plot. Sweeney referring to himself in the third person is more than enough for me, and I think we can sort of draw a line there, keep it relegated to that moment. A customer! Wait, watch your rush, watch your hurry. You gave me such a fright. I thought you was a ghost. Half a minute, can't you sit? Sit you down, sit. All I meant is that I haven't seen a customer for weeks. Did you come in for a pie, sir? Do forgive me if me head's a little fake. Ugh, what is that? But you think we are the plague? From the way that people keep avoiding. No, you don't. Heaven knows I try, sir. Ugh, but there's no one comes in even to inhale. Right you are, sir. Would you like a drop of ale? Mind you, I can't hardly blame them. These are probably the worst pies in London. I know why nobody cares to take them. I should know and make them. But good now, the worst pies in London. Even that's polite, the worst pies in London. If you doubt it, take a bite. Let's talk about the worst pies in London, Mrs. Lovett's big, wonderful, brassy, sassy, weirdo introductory number. Uh, This is the time when I focus entirely on Angela Lansbury's hair design. I know I just said that I would talk about the song, but let's talk about Angela Lansbury's hair design for the original Broadway production. There are few things more pleasing to my eye than the soft, fire-red, bouncy little pastry rolls sitting on top of her head like an extra pair of ears. These bonbons are a treat, and I want to pat them gently with my hand. I want to go pat, pat, pat. Much kudos to Lynn Kiyu, the hair and wig designer for the original Broadway production, as they are truly a subtle stroke of genius. They look like little desserts on her head, and I like it a lot. Also, Lynn, of course, as always, this is, I'm going to give one and only apology in terms of name pronunciation, and I'm going to give it to you, because I know that I couldn't possibly have gotten your last name right. But Lynn, again, love the hair design for Angela in this show, so kudos back to the song. This is your make it or break it moment with a role like Mrs. Lovett. You get this one chance to convince audiences you are right for the part, as only a true professional will be able to keep up with the numbers breakneck pace. Lansbury may a buffet out of it. She is such a ham. She is pounding dough, flinging flour, making it clear. She's the one you'll remember most while leaving the venue at the end of the night. It's the definition of a truly theatrical performance. It's so big. It's so broad as hell. It's borderline out of control, but Lansbury keeps her hands on the wheel and thus earns the right to be this loony, this gonzo. She does a Mae West impression at a later point in the show if that tells you anything, but she gets away with it. It's so ridiculous and indulgent, but you think to yourself, why not? Let's give it to her. She's she's this committed. She's this disciplined in her craziness that I trust her. Drive me anywhere you want to go, Angela. I have a fairly firm grasp on how I would stage some of these numbers. 
and I think I would put a greater emphasis on dance where I could. You don't really think of dance uh, being associated with Sweeney Todd. I mean, as we mentioned, the, the term choreographer wasn't even officially put in the playbill for this show. Choreography was not a term that was being thrown around. The worst pies in London feels like an opportunity to incorporate dance. Instead of having the character of Mrs. Lovett standing behind a counter as you would normally see her, I, I would have her cavorting about at all times, spinning like a top with a meat pie in hand. Of course, getting the lyrics out would have to take priority over any choreography, so you wouldn't want to make it too physically demanding. The dance, I mean. Look, we'll talk about this during the production meetings, okay? I'm the director, but I'm just, let's just put a pin in that, okay? when it comes to Joanna's introductory number, which is known as Greenfinch and Linnet Bird. On the one hand, it always kind of feels like an early chance to run to the restroom if you need to go. The metaphor we get here, which compares Joanna's life with Judge Turpin to that of a bird trapped in a cage, is simply and quickly processed, right? It's, it's not hard to digest. Vocally, the song is consistently bright and operatic, and while the lyrics eventually take on a shade of the forlorn, a shade of the melancholy, you don't wind up learning much about the character in this number. Joanna and Anthony read almost like parodies of young lover archetypes. I'm actually pretty sure I have seen this confirmed somewhere. So there's not much to learn, frankly. And I'm just going to say this right now. If it's Anthony, if it, if I should have been saying Anthony this entire time, I, I think that's what they say in the Entertainment Channel TV special. You know what? I'm going to stick with what I've been saying. Saying, even if it's wrong, it's 2019, and I'm gonna make I'm gonna make my own truths. <laughs> what an irresponsible thing to embrace. But I'm just probably gonna stick with Anthony. I'm gonna double down on my mistake, so I apologize if that's been driving you crazy this entire time. But on the other hand, going to the flip side of my initial argument, if you skip out on this sequence, it could mean missing out on some of the show's more unsettling details. The birds being sold outside Joanna's window have been blinded as their caretaker informs Anthony because it prevents them from distinguishing between night and day. Therefore, they sing constantly, clawing at the bar of their cages in confusion, the bird Anthony buys for Joanna has its neck twisted by the beetle, the first example Anthony is given of just how the world can be uh, utterly merciless. And in the second act, shortly before Joanna is rescued from the asylum, we learn she too has been singing day and night. The lines between the dots are sharply drawn. The connections are sharply drawn, I should say. Uh, all of the connections come back to this song, this sequence. So I I guess what I'm saying is, uh, despite your initial instincts, maybe don't go to the restroom during Greenfinch and Linnebird. Hold that pee, that urine, that yellow hot urine. Just keep it in your bladder because you, you won't want to miss out on these key details. There are callbacks in the second act that you might not understand. If you don't go to the bathroom before a theatrical performance, you're a fool. You're a simpleton. Get out of here. I'll steal you, Joanne. think that walls can hide you even now I'm at your window I am in the dark beside you buried sweetly in your yellow hair 
Anthony's big ballad, Joanna, comes directly out of a song known as Ah Miss. This is a song that reminds me of My Fair Ladies on the Street Where You Live. I have nothing more to say beyond that. I just wanted to make that quick comparison before diving properly into the song, Joanna. Is this low-key the scariest song in the entire show? I would think that it is. Anthony, overwhelmed by the sudden passion he feels for a woman he does not know, loses himself in thoughts of stealing her away. He sings, do they think that walls can hide you? Even now I'm at your window. I am in the dark beside you, buried sweetly in your yellow hair. If you don't pull away from Anthony during these lyrics even a little bit, you're giving him way too much credit. He objectifies Joanna just as ardently as Judge Turpin and is equally as determined to possess and win her. As if the lyrics in the song Joanna weren't strange enough, there's another moment during the filmed performance, the Entertainment Channel TV special, where Anthony breaks a birdcage apart with his bare hands. He rips it in half. This guy is not fucking around. Look what he did to that birdcage. It's it's really crazy. I've seen the Entertainment Channel TV special before, but when that happened, I thought, oh, I don't remember this. He is ripping apart that birdcage. He is fucking, he is Hulk Hogan out. Joanna, Joanna, so suddenly a woman, the light behind your window, it penetrates your gun. Joanna, Joanna, the sun, I see the sun through your... No! I watch you from the shadows. You sigh before your window and gaze upon the town. Your lips part, Joanna, so young and soft and beautiful. God, deliver me, please, leave me. Joanna, Joanna, I treasured you in innocence and loved you like a daughter. Judge Turpin gets his own version of a Joanna song. Uh, This is a great example of a sequence that was cut on the way to Broadway, but then recorded later for inclusion on the original Broadway cast album. Much like Judge Claude Frollo in Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Judge Turpin finds himself simultaneously indulging in these insidious, disgusting thoughts regarding his young ward and straight up lashing his own back with a fucking whip. Is the song better than The Hunchback of Notre Dame's Hellfire? I will leave you to make that decision for yourself. I mainly bring this song to the table because I once saw it performed, not Hellfire, I should say, this Joanna song. I <laughs> I saw it performed as part of a community theater production of Sweeney Todd. Did the actor playing Judge Turpin hit himself with a whip? Yes, that makes sense. But was that whip Uh, Second question, was that whip made out of squashy rubber? Uh, Did it essentially look like a dog's chew toy? Was it maybe the length of a toothbrush from tip to tip, stem to stern? Yes. Did the actor playing Judge Turpin ever once indicate that the whip was causing him pain? No. He lightly grazed his back with the whip as if he was at a spa, as if he was taking a nice day for himself at a Swedish spa. It was hilarious. So if your final question was, was it hilarious? Then yes, that that would be my answer. It was quite hilarious. Pretty women, fascinating, sipping coffee, dancing. Pretty women are a wonder. Pretty women sitting in the take a moment to talk about the song Pretty Women, because this is not the first time Sondheim's characters have waxed poetically on the dainty qualities of women. Uh, See also, in praise of women, from 1973's A Little Night Music, which has a decidedly more cynical edge. Let's hear a little bit of that. Capable, pliable women, women, 
undemanding and reliable, knowing their place. Insufferable, yes, but gentle. Their weaknesses are incidental, a functional but ornamental. Grace, durable, sensible women. Comparative, right? We're definitely in the same ballpark here. The book for that show was also written by Hugh Wheeler, so I would bet there's a meaning there in that connection, in that overlap. Pretty Women is so well-written, it routinely tricks me into thinking nothing is wrong and no one is in any danger. This is when Sweeney, I should say, within the context of the plot that we got earlier, Sweeney has the judge in his barber's chair for the first time. He's savoring this moment that's going to lead up to his great reckoning, the judge's great reckoning, I should say. I can't help but get caught up in this sweeping melody, the gauzy imagery of women blowing out candles and sipping their coffee. Sweeney is truly an actor's part, right? That's my other big takeaway after listening to this number, because he is all about a rigid focus on want. What Sweeney wants and needs to achieve from moment to moment, scene to scene, is all that matters, and it's always very clearly spelled out. It's never really all that complicated. I want to see my daughter again. I want my goddamn barber's chair to be delivered on time. I want it. I want to kill everyone in London. Pretty obviously stated wants, right? These are clear, concrete wants. A lot of actors can spend hours parsing out the intentions behind their dialogue, but Sweeney isn't putting up with that nonsense. He doesn't have time for your bullshit. If you can't figure him out, it's your own damn fault. All right, you sir. How about a shame? Come and visit your good friend, Sweeney. You, sir, true sir, welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. Who, sir? You, sir? No one's in the chair. Come on, come on! Sweeney's waiting. I want you, please. You, sir, anybody... Gentlemen, now don't be shy. Not one man, no, not ten men, nor a hundred can assuage me. I will have you. <laughs> the song Epiphany should be Sweeney Todd at his most frightening. Throw open the doors as an actor and let loose whatever unbridled anger you might have to offer. I mean, be safe about it. Don't don't ruin your voice and don't <laughs> don't be thrashing about it at Mrs. Levin on stage, for God's sake. But you know, let loose. Really go crazy with it is what I would say as a director because what Sweeney wants to do more than anything in this moment is bellow. He is roaring to the heavens. He believes he has hit rock bottom and so chooses to lean into the prospect of becoming a true monster, a demon, if you will. Wink, wink. Again, subtlety shouldn't be on the menu here. That's what I say. This is why Johnny Depp's dead-eyed mannequin of a Sweeney was so disappointing in Tim Burton's film. This is a molten lava horror story, not a measured examination of a man losing his soul. So don't give me anything less than 110%? No, 150%. That's an order, kids. Now come back to me when you can. <laughs> Serve it up to me, yum yum. The song A Little Priest apparently, according to Wikipedia, was written to ensure Act 1 didn't end on the brutal notes hammered out by Epiphany, uh, which we just heard. And it's yet another wise decision on the part of the writing team, I think. A Little Priest allows us to gradually come back down to Earth earth with some straight-up British Hall vaudeville borscht belt comedy, with Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Lovett trading quips like old stage comedians. I especially enjoy how Sweeney and Lovett find themselves in a bit of rhyming warfare. Now let me sing. Uh, we've got uh, Tinker. No, no. Something Pinker. Tyler. Paler. Butler. Suffer. Potter. Hotter. Locksmith. 
It's a hoot. That locksmith stymies Sweeney in this rhyming battle that they have. I like that really tiny moment. I like that a lot. I mean, they're maniacs, but it's fun to watch them have fun. And so let's move into uh, Act 2 and talk about By the Sea. By the Sea, Mr. Todd, that's the life I covet. By the Sea, Mr. Todd, who I know you'd love it. You and me, Mr. T, we could be alone in a house what we'd almost own down by the sea. Anything you say Wouldn't that be smashing? With the sea at our gate We'll have kippered herring What have swum to a straight From the straits of bearing Every night in the kip When we're through our kippers I'll be there slipping off your slippers By the sea With a fishy splashing By the sea Wouldn't that be smashing? This wasn't emphasized during my plot summary, I realized, but Mrs. Lovett is in love with Sweeney Todd and presumably has been in love with him since he went by the name Benjamin Barker back in the old days. She spends the entire show trying to pull even a thread of affection out of this man, but her attempts fall on deaf ears. Of course, it should also be emphasized that Mrs. Lovett is out of her fucking mind. She is just as comfortable around murder as Sweeney is and simply views it as a sticky means to her picture postcard happy ending. The biggest moment of shock that she has in the face of a body is when she sees her first corpse, that being uh, Pirelli, a.k.a. Daniel. But she gets over that real quick. (laughs) She has this moment of, oh, what in the... Oh, okay. Oh, I see what you did. Oh, that's unfortunate. What are we going to do? <laughs> she has no she has no tears for the dead, and she is more than willing to profit off of their bodies if it means that she can sell more fucking pies. I would argue she sort of kind of loves Toby as well, the young boy character, placing him in the role of their surrogate child, maybe. But that seems a little bit too generous, maybe, on my part. If anything, she views Toby as a pet. That can also be killed if he becomes too much of a nuisance. I know my concept for this song is a riff on what Tim Burton offered with his dumb film, but hear me out because I think my idea would be better and more entertaining. That's right, I think I have a better idea than Tim Burton. I think that in 2019 especially, I think. That's not a crazy statement to make. So every production of Sweeney should feature some form of oppressive set design, like that forge uh, that we described near the beginning of the episode. But I would throw all of that out during By the Sea. I would push all of that foreboding set dressing away to offer instead, as a momentary replacement, Technicolor Frankie and Annette beach blanket bingo realness, baby. Bring out the women in the ensemble in old-fashioned swimwear and have them do a full dance routine with Mrs. Lovett. Again, encouraging, embracing the element of dance during this number, all while Sweeney sits unmoving, unblinking, uh, I just really like the idea of Mrs. Lovett going full guys and dolls Adelaide with a group of backup dancers. Again, my visions tend to be expensive. I realize this might be a bit much for any production's budget. So I'll need quite a bit of money, is what I'm saying, to make my visions a reality. Uh, The phones are open, as always. Patty, uh, let's take those calls regarding money. Give me that money, baby. (laughs) Money, money, money. Money, 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 money. Give me your fucking money. No one's gonna hurt you. No one's gonna dare. Others can desert you, not to worry, we still all be there. Demons will charm you with a smile for a while. But in time, nothing's gonna harm you. Not
And then the final song we will be discussing uh, just right quickly is Not While I'm Around. Uh, Toby sings this song. He is a weird little chicken nugget bug nut, isn't he? Uh, bringing on, banging on his drum, I should say, chugging gin. He's a child. He just chugs gin. I mean, it is the 1800s. Uh, developing a near Oedipal obsession with old Mrs. Lovett. He's the youngest of the many men in this show who are a little too concerned with protecting the women in their life but he's also the most naive by a mile. Not While I'm Around is kind of the 11 o'clock number you forget Sweeney Todd has up its sleeve. And I'm always pleased as punch when it arrives. I, I belt out these notes, by the way. I would I would stray away from, you know, head voice and falsetto. I would go for big belting uh, notes during Not While I'm Around. Uh, don't spare us any creepy puppy-like mannerisms. Again, go big or go home when it comes to Sweeney Todd. Uh, that's, the, that's, that's all I have to say in regards to Sweeney Todd's fantastic Stephen Sondheim score. And now we are going to get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Specifically, 5678 Orange Grove. Take it away. My name is Patrick Bateman, and this is my morning coffee routine. When I wake up at 4 a.m., I fling off my cashmere sheets and give a middle finger to the rising sun because I am in charge of my day. I take my little booty, which is clad in Ralph Lauren underwear, over to my cashmere countertop where I engage with my pre-made coffee cup. That's right, it's been pre-made by a child in Taiwan. I only buy children from Taiwan. The child hands me my pre-made coffee cup, which he made with a kiln that I bought with my own money, because I'm a rich, rich man. He hands me my pre-made coffee cup, which is 40% clay and 60% cashmere, and I sip from it a pre-made batch of 5678 breakfast morning grove coffee. That's right, if I got the name of the brand wrong, that's your fault, not mine. Aha, don't even bring that to me. Don't even bring it to me. I I hate criticism, baby. I hate it so much. But you know what I love? Five, six, seven, eight coffee. I love the way that that citrus, lovely, syrupy loveliness goes down my throat. It makes my tummy go yum, yum, yum. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't ruin my tummy. It doesn't turn my tummy into a belly. No, no, no. My tummy has a 12-pack. That's right. My body cannot be affected by inherent sugar in that awful store brand coffee that you plebes drink every day. No, I need something that's rich and that's made out of organic material. Organic material that's ripped out of the ground and processed by Taiwanese children like the unnamed child I have living with me right now. I don't have a name for him and I don't intend to give him one. I have the name in the household and that's Patrick Bateman. If you're like me, Patrick Bateman, an outdated representation of fascist yuppiedom, then perhaps you would like five, six, seven, eight, Orange Grove. Five, six, seven, eight, Orange Grove. You can count on it, baby. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to, I don't know, have sex with 47 prostitutes? Yeah, that's what I do, baby. Final thoughts on Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney Todd is the best version of a ghost story the world of musical theater has to offer. I have sat down with it any number of times, and yet, as I watched the Entertainment Channel TV special, as I watched George Hearn and Angela Lansbury in that recording, I found myself unable to turn away from their ghastly antics all over again. I, I was completely absorbed. I'm a sick little freak, what can I say? All of Sondheim's shows are my monumental challenges for actors and directors alike, but this is the show I would love to tackle the most from either end. I would love to direct the show. I would love to be in the show. Did I mention the phones are open? As a reminder, Sweeney Todd was the winner of the 1979 award for Best Musical at the Tonys. The other nominees that year were Ballroom, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and they are playing our song. Here's what I have to say when considering whether these shows should have won out over the likes of Sweeney Todd the demon barber of Fleet Street. 
<laughs> no, absolutely not. They should not have won out over Sweeney Todd. No way, dude. When it comes to ranking the show, I am giving Sweeney a slight edge over Into the Woods because while I admire the depth of character and storytelling on display in Into the Woods, I find myself wanting to revisit Sweeney more often. Maybe this will change, though. You never know with these rankings, right? One day I could wake up and everything might get tossed about like a great salad. Yum, yum, yum. I am going to put this in my number two slot. I should have made that clear right up top. So that's going to be right between Carolina or Change, still at number one, and at number three, Into the Woods. Thanks go out again to our Patreon donor, Jenna, for suggesting this week's subject. It was a truly joyful experience. I mean, look, I'm not the kind of person who revels in this kind of grisly tale. I'm not like a true crime serial killer obsessive. I don't like go on Charles Manson bus tours. But when it comes to this specific particular grisly tale. I'm a total grosso rat boy devotee. Lock me up and throw away the key. I'm guilty. I love Sweeney Todd. Uh, Jonathan, do you have a bit of show-related ephemera for us this week? Yes, I do, my listeners. The Ballad of Sweeney Todd, a disco cover performed by Gordon Grody as part of his 12-inch release, His Master's Fish. Now, I, I might be getting this wrong. Either the, either the release is titled His Master's Fish or the group performing the number is known as His Master's Fish, and the featured artist in that group is Gordon Grody. I'm a little confused as to how all of that sort of rolls out credit-wise. This can be purchased via iTunes as part of a double album known as a Sondheim Collection, but it's, it's just available on YouTube as well, and so let's get a clip of that disco cover of The Ballad of Sweeney Todd, baby. God, that's good. right? It includes a full throat slitting during the goofy disco beat. There's a nod to God That's Good, the lyric from the show. Uh, The lead singer exclaims at one point, ooh, he's a demon, 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 demon. And it's all set to a simple but infectious funky beat. The other track on Grody's release, by the way, is known as I Got My Eye On You, Love, Perfect Love. That song is it's fine. Look, I can't. it cannot compare to Disco Sondheim. I don't even know why they tried to follow it up with a generic disco song. Be, be goofy. That's, that's where you started, and now you're just giving me generic love romance times? Nah, 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 nah. Go back to the ridiculousness of the Sweeney Todd cover. That's, that's really kooky. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Roger and Hammerstein show, Joey Doesn't Eat Here Anymore. Everyone ready? Then away we go!
All right, I have stepped off of the musical carousel and I am currently taking in my surroundings. Aha! Oh, okay! <laughs> oh, goodness! This might be another subject for the Phantom Zone. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, this next week might be a very easy endeavor compared to this week's massive subject. Uh, it's a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical from the year 2000, and that is James Joyce's The Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Even more so than Big Deal, I think this... I don't think there's anything about this show available online, but I'll, I'll be damned if I don't try. I'll be damned if I don't try to figure out if there's anything to read or listen to in regards to this. But that's next week's subject. We, we're going from one of the most well-known musicals in the canon to James Joyce's The Dead. Some of these shows, everybody, I, you gotta understand, some of these shows are just... They are lost to the sands of time. Oh, goodness gracious. Thank you for listening again to this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. If you are interested in supporting the show financially, you can certainly do so. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. It is there that you will get a complete breakdown of all of the potential pay tiers that you can subscribe to. Uh, I will just say this. If you donate at least $1, you will get a weekly verbal shout-out, uh, just like these people. So thank you again to Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Just to let you know, any money that you do donate to the show goes toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and it also helps to offset the costs of having the show hosted through Podbean. If we ever get to a point where I'm uh, bringing in over $100 in total monthly donations, it will result in the production of a show known as M3, The Movie Musical Man, which will be dedicated to movie musicals that we normally wouldn't encounter here in the main feed of the show. Uh, if you are listening through iTunes, uh, please take the time to go into the iTunes store and write an iTunes review. We haven't seen one in about a month or so. I would love to read another five-star review in the iTunes store. If you write a review and you let me know, I will send you my cover of Rents Light My Candle. It's very ridiculous. You might also be streaming the show. You might be streaming it through Stitcher or musicalmanpod.podbean.com. You might be following us on Twitter. That's at musicalmanpod. And maybe you've written to us via email at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Jenna wrote me an email this week. Uh, she asked which shows I believe should be revived ASAP. Uh, her picks, City of Angels, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and Merrily We Roll Along, which are all very solid picks, in my opinion. Uh, here's my list. Guys and Dolls, Man of La Mancha, Sweet Charity, The Wiz, Woman of the Year, Baby, Grand Hotel, The Scarlet Pimpernel, The Wild Party, specifically Andrew Lippa's version, which never made it to Broadway in the first place, You're in Town, and In the Heights. Why not? It's been ten years. Uh, thank Thanks go out to Alex Green for designing our beautiful logo, as always, and to Zach Little, who uh, devised, uh, designed, created our beautiful intro and outro music, and that's that doorbell, baby. And you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>